It is a unbelievable joy to be before you this morning. It's a church I grew up in, and uh, you know many of you have known me since I was really small. And uh, it is unbelievable what the Lord has has done and in, in bringing bringing me here, and I am just thrilled to be here. Well, this morning we're in the book of Titus, and I invite you to turn with me to chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 to 8. We will get started. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So I've entitled this this morning's sermon, Be Ready for Every Good Work. Uh, This is one of the commands that Paul gives Titus uh, to give to the churches in Crete. Uh, And in my estimation, is really the theme of the letter as a whole. Uh, It's repeated often. In uh, verse 2, Paul says that he's writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, In verse 16, uh, he's talking about the false teachers and he says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The beginning of chapter 2, he commands Titus, he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In uh, verse 13, chapter 2, it says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who... Uh, gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people zealous, uh, people for Himself who are zealous for good works. Here in chapter 3, we see in verse 1, uh, to be ready for every good work. And then in verse 14 of, chap- uh, of chapter 3, He says, And a lot of our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Uh, so this, this letter is about godliness, about what it means to live the Christian life. Um, and we, we are in a culture saturated with grace, which is great, but we must remember that grace doesn't negate obedience. So that's 
what I want to talk about this morning is that in light of the grace of God, what should we do? How should we live? Um, in this book of Titus, uh, I, I chose this book uh, for that reason. Also, it's not a terribly common book when it comes to uh, teaching and preaching. It's not one that I am uh, have hear a lot from in various venues. It's not terribly neglected, but it's just sort of one that uh, you don't hear a lot from. So I love this book and uh, have spent a lot of time here over the years. So, uh, But before we, we look at our passage in particular, I want to uh, begin with a brief introduction to the letter as a whole, um, surveying the landscape, if you will, uh, so that we might situate ourselves in our particular text this morning. In order to understand this passage, we must understand the book generally. So we see in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul is the one writing, and in uh, verse 4, that he's writing to Titus. Titus was a traveling companion of Paul's, and Paul had left him on the island of Crete after his previous visit uh, that had established several churches on the island. Uh, Crete is an island uh, in the Mediterranean, and uh, at the time of this letter uh, had been under Roman rule for about 120 years. Titus's charge... While in Crete, we see this from verse 5, was to put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was to appoint the kind of elders described in verses 6 through 9 in order to combat the false teachers that Paul describes in verses 10 through 14. It's unclear exactly what kind of false teaching was going on, but we know that it, it must have had a Jewish element to it. Uh, he mentions the circumcision party in verse 10, Jewish myths in verse 14, and uh, in verse 15, perhaps he's uh, referencing ritual purity. And this had a very negative, practical effect on the lives of the people who were in Crete. These false teachers were upsetting entire families. Paul's desire is that Titus would rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse 13. Paul's summary of these false teachers, we've already read, is that they profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, in chapter 2, now that Paul has excuse me, told Titus what the problem was in Crete, he turns to give him instruction on how uh, Titus ought to live and how those under his care ought to live. And really, in chapters 2 and 3, there are really just two main headings in the rest of the book. Each one is divided into uh, three sections. First, Paul gives a command. Second, he gives the ground or the basis for the command. And then third, uh, he gives a command or a hope of of affirmation of what he's just said. Additionally, finishing out the book, uh, he gives some last minute uh, or some last warnings. He commands Titus to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For Paul says that they're unprofitable and worthless. He gives instruction on what to do with a person who continually stirs up uh, trouble and strife and dissension. He says they are to have nothing more to do with him And he closes his letter with travel instructions for Titus and sends his greeting to those who love him in the faith. So now that we 
hopefully have a, a better sense of uh, the book as a whole, the setting, uh, we can look more closely at our text. Notice again uh, the threefold pattern of our passage. So first Paul gives a command. Look in verses 1 and 2. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Next, he gives the basis, and this is in verses 3-7, through so I won't read it, the whole thing there, but notice that he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, and then in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So here we have this, uh, the ground for the obedience of the uh, people in Crete, and we'll talk more specifically about how that works in a minute. Uh, And then in verse 8, he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So he's encouraging, exhorting Titus to insist on what he has just said. Uh, so in examining this text here, my goal this morning is to remind us of the command to obey God, to be obedient, and then to really encourage us and exhort us to to find our obedience in the, uh, the ground of the command. That we're supposed to obey God, but He's very clear in stating why we should and really, in fact, how we can do that at all. So let's look at the command of verses 1 and 2. Paul commands Titus to be reminding. Uh, probably in your Bible it says remind them, uh, but uh, another way of saying this, to be reminded. It's a present tense verb. This isn't a one and done thing. Titus is to be continually reminding the people, uh, and that is the older men, the older women, younger women, younger men, and slaves that are mentioned in chapter 2. So everybody should be reminded to do the following. First, he says to be submissive and obedient. Now, Both of these words are uh, connected, really, with rulers and authorities, and so carry the meaning uh, together that they ought to be submissive and obedient to the human rulers and authorities and leadership over them. Paul's words in the 13th chapter of Romans help us uh, understand why this is so. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 1. So the governing authorities are appointed and instituted by God. Therefore, they ought to be obeyed. Since the first, uh, so the first command that Paul gives Titus here is uh, that they ought to submit to rules and authorities. And if you understand, think what the situation was at the time under Roman rule, uh, Romans were a very uh, barbaric people. Uh, Nero would uh, set Christians on fire uh, and use them as lamps um, and light for parties that he would throw. Uh, and it was illegal to be a Christian. So uh, it's very striking that Paul commands and commends obedience to uh, the people on Crete, uh, even to uh, this difficult government to submit to. Yet we know from many places in the Bible, uh, explicitly in Acts 5, that we are to obey God rather than man, including human authorities. So if a government is requiring the breaking of a commandment of God, Christians are in that case to refuse 
to do so. Thus, obey God. Yet other than that, Christians ought not to subvert and rebel against their governing authorities. So here we have this tension of obey your governing authority, and yet if, if they're asking you to break a command of God to walk in wisdom, to, but we should walk in a spirit of obedience. And that is our inclination, that what we want to do is to obey those set in authority over us because they are placed there by God. Next, Titus is to be reminding them to be ready for every good work. Uh, that second part of verse 1. Uh, note that he uses the word every. We may reason that he's, he's speaking broadly. When he says, uh, be ready for every good work, that he's probably not thinking merely in terms of regarding human governmental institutions now, but towards all people. Christians, uh, Paul is saying, they, sh- they should be ready for any good work that might need doing. Paul says in 2.14 of this letter that God's people are zealous for good works. That is, they are to be ready and prepared, seeking out how they might act for the good of others. Paul continues, they are to speak evil or ill of no one. This is not to say that they are not to rebuke and speak negatively about someone at any time. Paul does this very thing in chapter 1. Rather, they should refrain from slandering others and speaking the worst about them as men and women are so inclined to do. The next two items that Paul lists address uh, attitudes uh, directly. They are to be disposed to peace and kindness. Lastly, part of verse 2, Paul says that they are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Titus is to instruct them not to show partiality to some, degrading others. But kindness is to be shown toward all men, rich men, poor men, women, young, old, black, white, saved, unsaved. This command that Paul gives, uh, this is the command that Paul gives to the people in Crete. Now, moving on to what will be the uh, majority, what will spend the majority of our time on this morning is the the basis for the command. So, the the ground now for the basis or the ground of the command is twofold, as I mentioned earlier. First, Paul describes a person's, person's condition before conversion to Christ. This is found in verse 3 and then in 4 through 7. He contrasts that condition with the action of God on behalf of that person. These two things form the ground of the Christian's obedience. First, Paul sets forth in seven characteristics that which these Christians, Paul and Titus included, what they were before coming to faith in Christ. Paul writes, For we ourselves also were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Uh, by foolish, Paul essentially means that they, are, they have no spiritual understanding. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the, the, spirit, the natural man cannot understand, comprehend the things of God, for they're spiritually discerned. That he is of the flesh, not of the spirit. Second, they're disobedient and unruly, probably both to God and human government here. 
Um, seeing the connection with what he commands in verse 1 is probably in mind as well. But additionally, by disobeying human governments, they certainly are disobeying God as well. Uh, next, he says they're being led astray. Probably concerning sin. That sin uh, is enticing them and pulling them away from the path of righteousness. They were not walking along the path of truth and righteousness, but upon the path of sin and destruction. Fourth, they're enslaved to various kinds of passions and pleasures. Not only are they led astray, but they're held captive by these desires. Unbelievers live by their evil desires. They are controlled by them and bound to them. Fifth, the days of unbelievers are spent in malice and envy. They just That's how they pass their time. Being malicious and vicious. Envying one another. They are wicked and mean-spirited. Wanting, needing what other people have and not resting until they've either gotten it or taken it away from the other person at least. If I can't have it, no one can. Sixth and seventh, Paul says that unbelievers hate one another. They hate and they are hated. At one time in our lives, is this not how we once lived, Christian? Even if you've been a believer, you were born again at an early age, can you still not feel the temptation toward these things in your very heart? Or is it just me? Perhaps some of you may think that this list of terms, this striking list, doesn't apply to you or never has. You don't see yourself as really being that bad. If this is the case, I would direct you to, direct you to the book of Romans chapter 3. Let's, let's turn there. So verse 10... Uh, verses 10 through 18, Paul, uh, quoting, says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. The ma- their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So between Titus and Romans, we see here that There is nothing good in the unconverted man in his flesh. Without Christ, one is wicked, vile, rebellious, foolish, disobedient. He's led astray. He's enslaved to his passions and pleasures. And he spends his time in malice and envy, hating others and being hated by others. Without Christ... We are a gross people. Because of this, we deserve nothing but death. Know that in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. 
However, with verse 4 comes one of the most glorious words in the entire Bible. But. Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. What a marvelous statement, isn't it? Although we were foolish, He saved us. Is this not good news? Brothers and sisters, those of us in here this morning that are in Christ, do our hearts not leap at the thought of the kindness of God? While we were disobedient, He saved us. While we were led astray and enslaved to various passions and pleasures, He saved us. While we spent our days in malice and envy, He saved us. While we were hated by others for the things that we did, our sins against them, and we hated them, God saved us. Feel that this morning, child of God. Exult in that truth. So in these four verses, I want to answer four questions that come to mind regarding this profound truth of the salvation of God for mankind. First, when did God save us? What do we mean that He saved us? Third, why did He save us? And fourth, how did He save us? I see these, these questions arising out of the text. I see the text answering them as well. So notice, answering the first question, when did God save us? He saved us, in verse 4, when the goodness, when His goodness and loving kindness appeared. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, His grace. In 2 Timothy 1, 9-10, Paul makes it clear that God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ's first coming. So it is at this first coming of Jesus some 2,000 years ago that God saved us. What Paul means is that at the appearing of Christ, His life, death, and resurrection for sinners, this is when God provided salvation for mankind, for those that would believe. Now, additionally, we all know that in our lifetimes, those of us who know Christ and are loved by Him, that there's a moment when we're saved out of our sins. When we experience the salvation of God. So there's both a historical... A redemptive historical nature to it. A time in history when the salvation of mankind was brought about through Christ. And then in each individual person's life when he or she comes to know the Savior, um, He's saved as well. And note that this is while we were sinners. So we were saying, God saved us when mankind hated Him. And, and really, didn't want anything to do with Him. And second, what do we mean that God saved us? Now, I think the question this question naturally arises out of this text, uh, but it may not be these verses per se that answer the question. I think Paul does in this letter 
Um, and certainly the Bible does elsewhere as well. So what do we mean that God saved us? This can be answered in two ways. First, from what has He saved us? And to what, or perhaps better, to whom has He saved us? Before God saved us, we were in deep rebellion against Him. All of mankind stands guilty before God of having broken His law. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We're all familiar with this story, I'm sure. God had created Adam and Eve and the rest of creation, and it was good. Yet Satan, the angel who fell from heaven, took the form of a serpent, tempted Eve to sin against God by eating of the tree in the garden from which God had commanded them not to eat. The one tree. He says, I give you every tree but one. And they ate from it. Both Adam and Eve failed to overcome temptation and gave into the serpent's scheme eating the fruit. This resulted in a broken relationship between God and man. Paul describes uh, the result of this fall and the path of restoration from the fall in Romans 5. He puts it this way, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verses 18 and 19. Uh, What I want to draw out of these verses is that uh, because of Adam's sin and our own individual sin resulting uh, from these sinful natures that we have passed on to us by Him, uh, we all stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. That is our most fundamental problem. So then, if this salvation is going to ultimately matter to us, We've got to be saved from the wrath of God. If we're saved to a bigger house, better health, more friends, more stuff, obedient children, non-oppressive parents or government, if that's what we're saved to, we get all of it, and we're not delivered from the wrath of God, then we really haven't been saved. We may have our best life now, but we will perish for eternity under His wrath. So, for this salvation that God provides, it must be from His wrath. And praise God that it is. So the second question. If we're saved from the wrath of God, what are we saved Two, answer, God. Look back up in uh, Titus 2, 11-14. Paul says that the grace of God brings salvation to all people through Jesus Christ. In verse 14 he says, "...who gave Himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. So we are saved, purchased by Christ for Him. We are His people. So we are saved from God, to God, by God. Yet why did He save us? 
Concerning our third question, this answer is twofold as well. First, uh, I see Paul answering the text, giving the ground of our salvation, the reason, what caused God to save us, and then second, the intended purpose. What is supposed to result or happen because we're saved? So first, the ground. Paul addresses this from two angles. Negatively and positively. Look at verse 5. He says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So negatively, Paul says that God saved us not because of works done by us, by us in righteousness. He is crystal clear. It is not because of our own righteous deeds that we are saved. It is not what we do that merits salvation. God doesn't look at us and see how well behaved and moral we are and then choose, now will be a good idea to save them because they're good or that somehow it's, that's what's getting us into heaven. Uh, if we think that it's Jesus plus something else equals salvation, we've got it wrong. Jesus plus, uh, Jesus plus nothing else is what brings us into right standing with God. Salvation is all of grace. Now, good works do, as we will get to that in a minute, have a place in the life of the believer. But as for our standing, why we're saved, it's because of God, not us. If we think... Uh, we've got to present our good works as some resume in order for uh, God to be accepted by God. We've missed the boat entirely. There's nothing that you or I can do to please God in our flesh. None of us is good enough. Not a single person here or in all of history is good enough to be accepted by God. So, as we saw in verse 5, positively, Paul says that God saved us according to His own mercy. It's not because of works, because of mercy. God is merciful. He is gracious. And that's why He saved us. Because He wanted to. According to His own goodwill and purpose, He saved us. We can't earn it. So, that's the, the ground the first answer to the question, why did God save us? We see that it's not because of works righteousness that we did, but because of mercy. Yet, what, what's the purpose or the intended result? What's the goal of our salvation? He saves us so that, uh, in verse 7, that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the stated purpose or the intended result. The ground of it is God's mercy. The goal of it is eternal life. Our inheriting of eternal life. Though we deserve death because we are sinners and have broken, have a broken relationship with God and stand condemned before Him, He saves us that we might have life eternally. The term uh, being translated, uh, translated being justified has to do with legal standing before God. If God is a judge, we stand before Him Guilty. It's a legal term. 
God is the holy judge in the universe, and as we noted earlier from Romans, we stand condemned before Him awaiting punishment. Yet in salvation, God declares us righteous. Being justified is God's declaration that we are not guilty of the infraction that we are in fact guilty of committing. Yeah, we just if we are guilty, how can God say we're not? This brings us to our fourth question. How did God save us? He says He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Washing of regeneration. The word indicates a new birth or regeneration or new beginning. This is a new birth that washes and cleanses one from the defilement of sin or its, in its pollution. The guilt that comes with being sinners. This is a spiritual washing and not physical. I take it this way because of the rest of the verse. Paul says, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing and this renewal are spiritual as they come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us, poured out on us by God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yet it still doesn't answer the question, really, how can a holy God declare <coughs> sinners not guilty? The answer, in short, that Paul gives here through Jesus Christ, which he expounds upon uh, in Romans. I ask you to turn there one more time, again to chapter 3, just a few verses. Uh, later, after what we read earlier. Paul says, For all have sinned, and we know from context, Jews and Gentiles, all of mankind under the face of the sun, uh, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There it is. God can declare, He can both declare guilty sinners not guilty wash them of their sins, and remain just Himself because He put forward His own Son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation or an appeasement. Jesus was crucified as an appeasement of God's wrath against sin. God's anger burns white hot against it, and He must punish sin. For He's holy. So He punished sin in the person of Jesus Christ so that we might go free. All of God's wrath that was pent up against you and me is gone. If we have received Jesus by faith as our only means of standing right before God, then God's wrath has been used up on Christ. 
We no longer stand condemned before God. In the cross, our sin is removed from our record. God's anger is abated and the righteousness of Christ is placed upon us so that when God looks at us, He does not see rebellious sinners, but He sees the righteousness of His perfect Son. This is a great and glorious truth. Please, don't miss the weight of this. It is only because Christ died a sinner's death in your place that you can have any hope of being justified in the sight of God. And if Jesus has died for you, you have all the hope you could ever want to have of being right in the sight of God. He has absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. So in summary of that, Paul urges, summary of our text so far, Paul urges Titus to exhort the believers in Crete to obey these commands in verses 1 and 2 because of God's mercy to them. While they were sinners, God saved them. He saved them from His wrath that they deserve. He saved them to Himself as His own people. He saved them not because of works they did, but because of His own mercy, that they might inherit eternal life instead of the death that they deserve. And He saved them through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, on their behalf, by the renewal of their minds and their washing from sin and the new beginning through regeneration of the Spirit. Lastly, uh, I want to address verse 8 in Titus. He says, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here Paul affirms the trustworthiness of what he has just commanded Titus to remind the churches in Crete and expresses his desire that Titus insist on these things. For what purpose ought Titus to insist on these things? Paul says that it is so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And these things are profitable for people. So here is my attempt to answer the question. Uh, again, we've talked about it. What place do good works have in the Christian life? It's not in order to be saved. It's not in order to be saved. We don't obey to be saved. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. We obey because we have been saved. They are a necessary consequence of being saved. Paul is clear that part of the problem with the false teachers in Titus that they denied Him by their works. They were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. That if we profess to have faith in God and yet live like hell, we are liars. 
So it's not in order to be saved, but it is a necessary consequence of a person being saved. Paul writes that those who have believed in God are to devote themselves. It's intentional. Work. Devote. It's not haphazard obedience, but a mindful concentration on obeying the will of God expressed through His Word. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that God saved us to do good works, you see here, which He created beforehand that we should walk in them. God is intentional. He has specific things He wants us to be doing, and we're saved to do them. Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 10 of this letter, that we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That when we profess to know God, we live like we know God. And our theology, all the right things that we know, are expressed through our actions. And it's an adornment of the truth that we believe. We demonstrate ourselves to be those redeemed from lawlessness. John says in 1 John that sin is lawlessness. Disobedience to the law of God is sin. So we're redeemed from lawlessness by Christ, for Christ, as a people for His own possession. By our good works, we prove that we are God's children. We don't make ourselves God's children. So in conclusion, two things. First, to the believer. You applied this text to yourself. Do you realize what you've been brought out of and saved from by the grace and mercy of God? Does this then impact the way you live with those around you? Do you find yourself submitting to authority? Seeking out good works to do? Not speaking ill of others? Speaking the best in love. Being peaceable and gentle. Do you show perfect courtesy toward all people? Friends, family, enemies? If not, why not? It's because you've forgotten the grace of God that sought you out and delivered you from your sins. Are you unable to treat others with respect because you've forgotten the humility of God? in stooping to save a sinner like you, like me? Do you find yourself trapped in a certain sin? If so, is it because you are trusting in your own strength to deliver you? We must make a conscious effort to put to death the deeds of the body and to put on Christ. We who have believed in God, let us no longer go around walking living in the flesh. But we live and walk by the Spirit, and through the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body and keep the commands of God, and so prove we are His beloved children. Christian, do not despair. You are weak. Yes, we are weak. But Christ is strong. He has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Let us give thanks to the Lord that loved us and gave Himself up for us and let us live accordingly. Lastly, to the unbeliever. Anyone that might be in here. You consider this this morning?
Do you think your good deeds will earn you a pass into paradise? Jesus says no. His crown of thorns says no. The scars on His hands and feet say no. His pierced side says no. His soul that bore the wrath of the Almighty, eternal God says no. Your good deeds will not earn you a pass in the paradise. It is His work alone by which you may be saved. Do you find yourself in a state of misery without hope in this world? Does verse 3 of our text describe everything about your life? If so, I pray that you will apply to Christ for help. Seek Him while He may be sought. There will come a day when all chances to repent of your sins and turn to the Savior for refuge will be over. Day may be today. Maybe tomorrow. We don't know. We don't know what life holds. So please, I beg you, if you are not in the Savior, that you would delay no longer. Repent and believe. You are not too far gone to be saved. Those whom God has already saved were at one time in the same predicament that you are in right now. Flee from the wrath to come. Turn from your sins and believe the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I implore you, do not wait another moment, another day, Flee to the Savior. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, with trembling hands, I stand before You Lord, I ask that You would move in our hearts. Lord, those of us that know You, love You, loved by You, and called according to Your purpose, I pray that You would encourage our hearts this morning. I am utterly unable to communicate these truths so in the way that I desire. And yet, Lord, you, you, you speak through finite, fallen men. Lord, maybe it not be my words that ring in anyone's ears. May it be yours. Lord, I pray that any in here that do not know you, or that you would, Open their eyes that you would cause their cold hearts to start beating with spiritual life. Lord, you are the King, the Almighty Judge, and outside of Christ we stand condemned before you, but we know that 
In Christ, there is now no condemnation. So I pray that all of us in here would rest in that and trust in that. That is not because of our works that You saved us, but because of Your mercy. You saved us through Christ. And Lord, it is in His name that I pray. Amen.